Good evening, everyone. Hello. <laughs> I love when, when, they, when you say my name. Um, I don't know why, it just feels more like home. Uh, I am Brady, if, if you didn't hear that. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And I've, I haven't preached here in a while. Uh, and so you're going to have to give me a little grace if I fall off the stage. Uh, it's happened before, and I'm out of practice on, on the, the limits of, I'm, I'm out of practice on what my limits are. Uh, walking on air is one of them. Uh, I tell you what, I was thinking about this today. When I was 16, uh, I, I got my first car. Uh, it was a red Bronco 2. It was used, it was like a 1980-something or other. I don't know how many of you even know what a Bronco 2 is. So, because they've been discontinued, so I thought I'd show a picture of them. This was not my particular one, but this is what it looked like. Uh, it was red, and it had those windows in the back that go too high, that like higher than windows should go. I'm not really sure why. Uh, it doesn't look cool, and there's no like structural benefit to that at all. Nonetheless, they go up that high. Uh, so so that, was, that was the car that I got, and, and, and here's the thing. You know, it had a bunch of miles on it. It was, it was old, uh, but it didn't matter because that was my ticket to freedom. Right? Did you feel that when you got your first car, when you, when you began to drive, there was like an amount of freedom that you had from your oppressive parents. Mine were so oppressive and loving. It was terrible. But here's the thing. There was one thing that stood in between my freedom and myself, and it was that uh, the car was uh, manual transmission. Uh, there, there's an automatic transmission and a manual transmission. An automatic, uh, it shifts gears without you even knowing it. It does it on its own. Uh, if you're not familiar, there's a gear ratio in your car, which may, gives you the ability to go faster in your car. But if you've only ever driven an automatic, you're not, you're not familiar with the, the gear ratio. And so what you have to do on a, on a standard, and I, I, sh- I did a picture, if you'll go to the second one. It, it's, got, it's got a few things. Uh, four-wheel drive on the, that, that, that small uh, stick shifter right there. That's a four-wheel drive. Yeah, I had that. Um, and then over here on the floorboard, you'll notice, you probably can't see very well, but there are three pedals, not just a gas and a brake, but there's also a clutch. And, and, and what the clutch does is the clutch, along with the, the gear shifter, helps you get into the next gear. And here's how it works. Here's the process, is you push in the clutch, then you press on the gas and get it to the right amount of RPMs. I, it depends on the car, maybe 2,000 RPMs. You get it to the right amount of RPMs, and then you slowly let off the clutch while you press on the gas a little bit more. And there's a little bitty give spot. There's a little spot with, with this leg that you have to find just right to get the RPMs just right when you get it into gear. Otherwise, your car goes, and, and you stop. Just, it just dies. Now, I don't know this from experience, it never happened to me, uh, except it did. And here's the thing, there are different levels of difficulty of, of manual transmissions. If, you, if you're in a different car, some of them are extremely easy. Nowadays, they're really easy. Car cars, oh my, so easy. But the Bronco 2 was hands down the most difficult one I've ever driven, and it was the one I learned on. So that was really tough. It, I spent three days just on our, our property, on my parents' property, learning how to do this. Now, they lived on flat ground, which was great uh, for learning how to drive a standard uh, because it's more difficult when you're on an incline. Here's why. Because you only have two feet. Most of us only have two feet. And one foot is on the brake, keeping you from rolling backwards on the hill. 
And the second foot is put the clutch in. Well, if you don't rev up the gas, you can't let the clutch out or your car is going to stall on you. It's going to die, right? So you have to, at some point, take your foot off the brake, onto the gas, get it to the right amount of RPMs, and let out the clutch at the just same right amount of time. Otherwise, it dies, okay? So I learned on flat ground, and I got that down. But the reason it was difficult is because the clutch on the Bronco 2 that I drove, was, it was harder to push in. So the force pushing out on my leg was, was really heavy as I'm letting it out. And so it was just, it was crazy. And the, the margin of error was really small. The amount of RPM margin of error was, was really small. And so it was really difficult. One day I'm driving in my new Freedom Mobile and, and, I, and I come to uh, the, the dreaded hill. Uh, in Branson, there's these things called hills. Uh, some of you are familiar with hills. Some of you are not. That's okay. It's a steep incline. Uh, and, and, it, and it's an extreme steep incline, the one that I was on. Uh, I lived in a place where they, called the, they were called the Ozark Mountains. And they're not extremely high, not like the Rockies or the Appalachians, if you're familiar with either one of those mountain ranges. But they're, they're pretty high, but they're really steep. So I was going up a really steep incline. And the problem is I was in the wrong gear. I was in third gear, and third gear doesn't have near enough power to get up this hill. So about halfway up the hill, car starts going, and I wasn't, I wasn't all about downshifting yet. Didn't know how to downshift. I couldn't do that on a hill yet. So I start panicking. I don't know what to do. And of course, it goes, and it dies on the hill. So I'm here on the hill, I brake on, and I'm thinking, okay, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. I can get into first gear, I can make this happen. And then I look behind me, and a car has come up right on my bumper. Which means I can't roll back and have any kind of give as I'm trying to figure out the clutch situation. And so I say, come around. And I lived in a really small town where everyone knew everyone. And so the people knew me and the people behind them and the people behind them and the people behind them. And so all these cars start passing me and they're laughing at me and they're waving and it's really embarrassing. I'm trying to hide my head and I have to back down the entire hill. (laughs) I can't make it up the hill so I turn around and go the other way. And for the next three months, I avoid that hill. I will not go that way because I'm afraid of the hill because I just can't do it. I can't make it. I don't have the skill that it takes. And there was another hill that because of that, I also avoided that I was afraid of because I wasn't there. And, and, and this may sound silly, but when I think about life and especially the spiritual journey, I feel like a lot of times that's the way that it is. That, that you, you, you kind of get going and then all of a sudden it's like, go, 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 and, and everything goes terrible and you have to restart. Uh, you get excited about some new Bible study or you want to read the Bible every single day. You want to read the Bible in a year or you want to do something really big and, and you do it for a couple days and then you, you forget or you don't want to or you're too tired and you don't want to get up or who knows what. There's something that you want to do. I'm going to, God, I'm going to remain pure this year or, or God, I'm not going to date anyone this year. And then a guy or a girl comes along that's, you know, the one again and, and so it's like, but I made a promise. And, it's like, go, 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 go. and then you just feel like a failure all the time. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but so many times as I've traveled trying to follow Jesus, I felt like an utter failure. I have these big dreams, these big hopes. And then what I do is I begin avoiding these things. These things that are good for me, these things that are beneficial, I begin avoiding them because I, I'm afraid of what's going to happen or I'm embarrassed. 
And you think about all these other people that they seem to be driving by really, really fast in their automatics. You know, they don't have any problem with their spiritual journey. They don't have any problem with their quiet time. They don't have any problem with remaining pure or whatever it is. They seem to be doing just great. And it makes me feel even worse. And so you begin avoiding those people and you begin avoiding the situations uh, that are going to make you feel that way. I felt like this a lot. And as we jump into the book of Acts, uh, which, is, which details Paul's missionary journeys, I feel like his missionary journeys have also been a lot like this. He has a pattern uh, in the way that he does things where he'll go to a new city. He'll begin to preach the gospel. It'll take a little bit, to, take a little while to get some traction. And then people will be all about the gospel. And then some Gentiles will be all about the gospel. And the Jewish people will be jealous. And they'll get mad. And they'll run Paul out of town. And so he'll have to start over again at a brand new city. And he'll start to get some traction. He'll get into first gear, get into second gear. And then the Jews come in and they stone him. And he has to go to a different town. And this happens over and over and over. It's like you start to go and this go, 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 go. I used to do sound effects for a living. That's not funny. It's, it's, that's rude. That's just rude. Um, and, and so, uh, and this is kind of the way that it went. So he goes on his first missionary journey. He goes on his first missionary journey. If you want to throw up the, the, uh, the map, that would be great. Let's see if I can get this to turn on. Accio-lite. It's Lumos. Yeah. Sure it is. Now I, now I have a laser pointer where I can point out the person that said that. Um, this, is, this is a lazy pointer, laser pointer. This is the Mediterranean Sea. A lot of these words aren't very legible, and uh, that's okay, because I'll, I'll just make up stuff. Uh, so Paul starts out over here. This is Antioch, Antioch in Syria. And this is his home church. And his first missionary journey, he goes down with Barnabas to, to Cyprus. And then he goes up over here and hangs out in the area of Galatia a lot. And this is uh, Antioch, a different Antioch. I, I'm, I'm not making that up. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And these are kind of the cities where he hangs out. And in each, each city, same thing happens. He goes in, he gets kicked out. Goes in, gets kicked out. Goes in, gets kicked out. So, so he ends up going back home. Uh, they have a council in Jerusalem uh, where, they, where they come up with this thing that, hey, you don't have to become Jewish in order to be saved, in order to get the benefits of the Jewish Messiah, which is Jesus, which was really good news for all of us Gentiles. And so Paul decides, or Bar actually Barnabas, his companion, decides, hey, uh, we're in Antioch. Let's go back to these churches over here and visit. Let's encourage the, the brothers and sisters in Christ, the disciples that we've made, these churches. And so Paul says, great idea. Barnabas says, I've got a second great idea. Let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, <laughs> that's a good one. Because remember over here, Bar Barnabas, where John Mark left us and went back to Jerusalem. He went back home when we were here and we still had all this to go through. Uh, we're, we're not taking John Mark. And Barnabas said, no, let's give him a second chance. And Paul said, I give first chances. And, and so, so they had a, a very sharp disagreement, so sharp that Barnabas went, with, uh, Barnabas went with John Mark back to Cyprus, and Paul took Silas up here to the area of Galatia. Now, good news is they later reconciled, and, and things, were, things were good between Paul and Barnabas. 
But Paul went back here, and in here he's encouraging these people, and he he comes across a guy named Timothy. Now, he may have met Timothy his first time around. We're not sure. We don't know. But uh, here, uh, we we find out that Timothy has a phenomenal reputation. He is a man of God. And so Paul says, I want to take you with me as we continue on our journey uh, making disciples of all nations, which is really cool. So here's what they try and do. First of all, they try to go over here and, and we're, let's, let's actually read about it so then you don't think I'm making it up. Grab your Bibles, uh, snatch up one of the beautiful blues if you don't have one, or the wonderful whites, uh, as Caleb calls them. Uh, go to Acts chapter 16, page 601. Acts chapter 16, page 601. And it talks about, and it says, and they, and we're talking about Paul and Silas and Timothy. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Okay, so Paul is here in Galatia, and he's trying to go to, through Phrygia and then over here through Asia. So they're trying to go this way, this route. I mean, it's a coastal route. It makes a lot of sense. There are a lot of great cities on the coast. There's Ephesus over here. There's Colossae. A bunch of great cities that they could go to and spread the gospel. So Paul is trying to go this way. But then the Holy Spirit, in some way, shape, or form, lets him know, no, you don't need to be going through Asia. I have different plans. And so Paul says, okay, well, let's go north then. We can't, we can't go south. Let's go north into Bithynia. And it says, um, uh, it says, and, and, and uh, there we are. And when, the, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to, into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So we've got going up to Bithynia, strike two. They try and go south, no good. They try and go north, no good. So they end up going across the top of uh, this here to Troas. Going to the top to Troas. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. This over here is Macedonia. Okay, you got Macedonia up here. You've got Greece down here. You've got Rome over here. See that, Rome? It's good. America over here. Without an A, just America, right over there. Um, so there's a guy over here in Macedonia in, in, in Paul's dream, and he's saying, Paul, come over here and help us. We need your help. So Paul has already tried to go a number of different ways. He's tried to go the obvious route down south uh, towards Ephesus, and he tried to go north into Bithynia, and every time he went the way that he thought he was supposed to go, the Holy Spirit said no. And all of a sudden, he's over here in Troas, and he has a dream And in a dream, there's a man saying, come over and help us. And so he realizes, hey, we've got to go into Macedonia. Now, I don't know about you, but as I begin to describe Paul's missionary journey, doesn't it sound a little bit like learning how to drive a standard? He starts to go and it's like, stop. Starts to go and he he tries to go and then it stops. And he has to restart and restart and retry again and again and again. If I were Paul, I'd be a little bit frustrated. I'd be a little bit annoyed. This isn't over the course of a couple hours. This isn't over the course of a couple days. This from here to here is 500 miles. So going here, then going here, going here. I don't know how many miles out of the way that they went trying to preach the gospel, trying to do a good thing, and yet they kept getting prevented. I would have been frustrated saying, God, what are you doing? Where are you taking me? I mean, this, first of all, every time I go to a city, it doesn't seem to work. And then when I try to go to another place, you say no. 
So I would imagine Paul and his companions are probably a little bit frustrated. And so at the first sign of an opportunity to go somewhere that the Spirit would be leading them, they jump on this opportunity. However, this opportunity isn't all that it seems to be. You see, Macedonia is an extreme Roman, uh, Roman-saturated uh, place. Okay, uh, the, the uh, influence of Rome had come all over the world for sure, but it was very heavy in Macedonia. Um, what had happened uh, is there had been a bunch of different wars that had happened, and there was a gigantic civil war in 42 BC, 42 years before Jesus. There was this big war, this big civil war, where you had uh, Octavian and you had Mark Antony versus the senators that had murdered Julius Caesar. And finally, uh, somewhere in here, there's a big battle where Mark Antony and uh, Octavian won. They defeated the Senate, and then there was peace. There was great peace all over the world, which was wonderful. But the only problem is the Romans had a ton of men that were in the army that they didn't want going back to Rome and wreaking all kinds of havoc. So what they decided to do was to give them lots of land in these cities right here. These little round dots right here in Philippi and Thessalonica. Um, in, in all these different cities, they gave them plots of land, especially in Philippi, which is the city that we're going to hit. So you've got, you've got a very heavily Roman-influenced area where they worship the Roman gods and they follow the Roman laws and they're not into to other things coming in and changing the way that they think, changing the way that they act, changing the way that they worship. They don't want people changing everything. And so this is the call to go over here to this really difficult area. The second thing that's difficult is there's not a big Jewish population around there. The way that Paul would do it, he'd always go to a synagogue where there were a bunch of Jewish people that already knew the Old Testament. They knew about the prophecies for the Messiah. They were already looking for the Messiah. So Paul, all he had to do was go in and proclaim the Messiah. Say, hey, he actually came. I can prove it to you. Let me take the Old Testament and I'll show you prophecy after prophecy after prophecy how it pointed to Jesus. Here's who Jesus was. Here's what he did. Here's what he offers you. But when you go up here and there's not a big Jewish population, it's a completely different ballgame. So nonetheless, Paul decides to go with, um, with Timothy, with, uh, with Timothy and with Silas and someone else. It's interesting. It says in verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. This is the first time in the entire book of Acts you see the word we. They pick up a guy. Anyone know who they pick up? Rhymes with Luke. Anyone? Luke, yeah, that's, that's right, that's right. It's not the Luke whose, uh, uh, whose mother was Padme. So Star Wars fans, you know, don't, don't get excited. It's a different Luke. He's the one who wrote the book of Luke and also the book of Acts. Okay, so what's really exciting about that for us is now we begin to hear from an eyewitness account. It's not Luke writing about what he's heard, what he's been taught, what he's gathered together. It's now Luke writing about what he actually sees, which is really cool. So we've got a first, we have our first beginnings of an eyewitness account in the book of Acts going into Philippi. Verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Now, head to Philippi. Philippi is an interesting city. It's a very important city when it comes to, to Rome, especially in that province. Rome, uh, Rome had a, 
a military garrison there, which was, which was a big deal to kind of protect everything. Uh, it talked about Neapolis. Uh, Neapolis was right here where you would land, right near Philippi. And so Philippi kind of protected this, this area. Philippi protected this area. And then it was on this great big military highway that Rome had that connected all these places and the army could move from place to place. And also uh, Philippi was very wealthy. It had natural gold deposits and natural copper deposits. So you have a bunch of wealthy ex-Roman uh, army people, Roman officers, living in this, this Roman garrison-controlled city of Philippi, which was a Roman colony. Now, a Roman colony had great benefits. It meant that every person born there was a Roman citizen. Now, it wasn't a part, you know, it wasn't in Rome, but it felt like you're in Rome. It wasn't actually in Italy, but it felt like it when you were a Roman colony. Think about uh, Puerto Rico. Think about Guam. Think about the Virgin Islands. Uh, they're, they're, they're U.S. territory, and so if you're, you're born there, you can be a U.S. citizen and, and you get a lot of the different benefits of being, uh, you know, in the U.S., but it's not quite in the U.S. They have, there are some things they can't do. They don't have uh, people that, that vote in, in Congress uh, and in the Senate. But nonetheless, think of it a little bit like that. So in Philippi, uh, these people, they're all Roman citizens by birth. Uh, they have, they get, they get uh, great uh, legal rights. They get property rights. They get tax exemptions. There's a lot of great things. So you have these people that really feel like Roman citizens. They have a very, uh, very military background, and they're all about Rome, all about that realm, that realm, I, just, I can only think about that when I say that phrase, uh, all about that base. They are about the base in Rome, the, the military base. I don't know what you guys were thinking about, but I was thinking about the military base. Um, and so they head to Philippi, which is, which is a, a big Roman city that's not way into brand new ideas. And we'll see this in a second. It says uh, in verse 13, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So Paul and his buddies, they hang out in Philippi for a few days. And while they're there, you can tell they're trying to find out where the Jewish synagogue is. Well, there's no Jewish synagogue. So they want to know where there are some Jewish people, some people that have some sort of uh, common ground with them so they can share the gospel with them. But there's not a big Jewish presence there. So I imagine what they do is they hear from someone that, oh, you know what, I think there's a a prayer group that goes on by the river uh, on Saturdays. So... Yeah, whatever. So anyway, Saturday, the Sabbath, they head down to the river uh, where there is a prayer group of women who are God-fearers. Now, a God-fearer is not a, a Jewish person. There's someone who is a Gentile, someone who's not a Jewish person, they're Gentile, a non-Jewish person, that has heard about uh, the, the Jewish God, uh, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for, for one reason or another, from what they've heard, they fear God. Okay, they're kind of into the God idea, but they're not so into it that they're actually going to become Jewish. They're not going to go through the process of becoming Jewish. They're not going to put themselves under the strict Jewish law. They're not going to obey all the, the, the food laws and the purity laws and the worship laws and all that stuff. They're just, they just fear God and they're going to have a little prayer group. And one of the reasons that you, you know this is because they met outside the city. In this city, Romans wouldn't taken too kindly to a, another religion. Now, Judaism was an officially uh, recognized religion in Rome. However, there was some prejudice that went on, and here's why. Every person under the Roman banner of authority had to pray to Caesar. 
But a while back, many years back, the Jews had struck a deal with Caesar that, that they could still practice their religion and not pray to him, but rather pray for him. And so they had this special little exemption. And so they worshiped in a unique way, a strange way, a different way that people didn't understand. They didn't worship all the other gods. They didn't pray to Caesar. They didn't worship Caesar. They kind of got off the hook and prayed for Caesar. And so you can tell they met outside the city because if they met inside the city, they might have gotten some kind of persecution. It might have affected their families. It might have affected their businesses. And they didn't want to have any of that. So you've got a group of people that are God-fearers. They're kind of into the God thing, but they don't want it to transform their life. They don't want to go under all the rules and regulations. They don't want it to affect their lives or businesses, whatever that is. And so Paul finds this group of women and they sit down with them. Uh, And it says in verse 14, one who heard us, one of the women who heard us, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods and who was a worshiper of God. Okay, you've got this woman named Lydia. Lydia's from the city called Thyatira. Now Thyatira is a wealthy city. It's a wealthy city because it's got fertile land all around it. Uh, it, it also has a great big population of, of ex-Roman soldiers. Uh, and Thyatira is one of the very few places where you could get this purple dye uh, to sell. And that purple dye was very expensive. Uh, it was, it was uh, used to make purple garments which uh, were given and sold to royalty, sold to people of great status, of great wealth. And so you've got this woman, Lydia, who's from Thyatira. And Thyatira is over, over here just north of Ephesus. She's living here in Philippi. She's from there. And she's got the purple dye trade going on in Philippi. So she's a wealthy woman, a wealthy businesswoman who probably runs her business out of her home selling purple dyed clothing. Okay. It's interesting that the prayer meetings happen outside the city and not in her house. Right. She doesn't want that. What would that do to her reputation? What would that do to her business? It would be detrimental. So they meet outside and they pray. And you've got this woman from Thyatira. And it says, um, it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Let me read that again. This, This is beautiful. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Anyone in here scared to share their faith? Besides me? Yeah. yeah. It can be terrifying. I was on a plane not, not too long ago, uh, a week and a half ago, and I was sitting next to a guy, and I talked to him uh, for uh, the entire plane ride, and the whole time I'm thinking, uh, what can I say? Can I say something? Can I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Is he, is he, is he open, or, or is he not, or, or, or what should I say? And if I say something, what is he going to say back? And I was so scared and so nervous. It happens to all of us. You see, we have this idea that we need to have a seminary degree. We need to have a background in philosophy and logic and argument and, 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 and a worldview class in order to be able to share the gospel with someone. Because we think the results are on us. But the beauty of it is, the beauty of the gospel is that it is God who qualifies us. God who opens our heart. And this is what happened with Lydia. Is is they're sitting here, God fears, not really wanting God to invade their life. Paul comes and preaches and Lydia's heart is open to hear what he has to say. And we see that there's immediate life change. It says, and, in verse 15, and after she was baptized. So immediately, she hears the words that Paul is saying. God opens her heart. She says, I want to accept Jesus. I believe in the Messiah. Let's get baptized. I mean, we're right by a river. 
Let's get baptized, okay? So Paul baptizes her. Immediately, there, there, there's, a, there's a conversion and, and, and baptism. And then it says, and her household as well. So what we see now is not only has she believed, not only she's heard the message, not only has she been baptized, but now she's sharing with her household as well. All the people that were in her household, uh, family members, uh, business associates, servants. She was a wealthy woman, probably had a big house with lots of servants. And so all those in her household now, through her, hear the gospel and get baptized also. Immediately she gets baptized. Immediately she begins sharing her faith and they become baptized as well. It says, uh, and she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She accepts Jesus. She gets baptized. She goes and shares her faith or allows Paul to share with everyone in her household. They get baptized and then she realizes, I've got the spiritual gift of hospitality. I have an urge inside me to, to want, want you guys to come stay at my house. You probably need a place to stay. I want to use the gift that God has given me. I want to use the passions he's placed on my heart to bless those that God has called to do the work of ministry. Immediately, you see Lydia do all these different things. And later on, we'll find out that she opens her house to allow the church to meet in her house. She says, I've got some resources. I've got some stuff that God has blessed me with, that God has given me, and I want to use that to bless the body of Christ with. And they begin meeting in her house. And you see this radical life change, not just a decision to believe in Jesus, but a radical life change that changes every aspect of the way that she has been living. Before she was outside in a prayer meeting, and now the whole church is inside of her house using her gift of hospitality to bless the body of Christ so that the, the gospel can be shared all over the world. And I tell you what, what happened because of this woman, because of the way that she, uh, she radically changed, is this place, uh, this place, Philippi, became a stepping stone, became a, a stepping off point for the gospel to go to all these other areas, to Thessalonica, to Berea, uh, to Athens, to, to Greece, and then ultimately to Europe up here. There was great gospel impact because of her being willing to say yes to God's story for her life, not trying to hoard her life, not, not being afraid of all the implications that would happen but saying yes to God. God, use me. God, take me. Whatever I have, whatever gift I have, whatever talent I have, whatever resources I have, whether that's uh, money or it's a house or who knows what, take it and use it for your glory and your kingdom. And Paul wrote the letter of Philippians to this church. And we have some of the greatest, greatest lines ever from the book of Philippians. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's uh, praiseworthy, whatever's excellent, set your mind on these things. This, this letter was packed with such great depth. And Paul wrote to this church because some woman 
whose God-fear was willing to step out in faith and use what she had to allow the local body of Jesus to grow and flourish in her home. And I tell you what, I think my question tends to be, how come that's not our story? I I would imagine a lot of us look at the life of of Lydia, uh, and at times myself included, and we think, man, that's kind of extreme. I mean, she's kind of one of those crazy Christians. She's one of those extreme Christians, and and, and we we don't need to be doing all that, Right? I mean, we just, you know, we'll have our Jesus on the side, we'll compartmentalize our life, and we'll, we'll live our life here and, and here without Jesus, and he can, he can stay over here, but, but not affect this. I want him to save me for sure. I want him to be in that part of my life. Save me, so when I die, I've got some fire insurance, right? Save me, but I don't want him to be Lord over my life, because he's going he's gonna to complicate stuff. He's going to ask me to give up some stuff. He's going to ask me to jump into some things that I'm not ready to jump into. He's going to begin saying no to some things that I really desire, that I enjoy, that feels good, that feels right. What if, what if he asked me to go to Africa? What if he asked me to be single? <sighs> That's worse than Africa. <laughs> it's the way that we act though, isn't it? What if, what, if he, what if he asked me to give away a lot of my money, my hard-earned cash? What if he asked me to take in a stranger and they're annoying and they're frustrating? What if he asked me to begin discipling people that are difficult? See, Jesus, save me. Yes, save me. When I die, I want to be in heaven with you. Great. But don't affect my life here. Don't be Lord over my life here. I want you over here, not here. Lydia's, Lydia was extreme. That's not the way that we should do it. But Lydia is the classic example of what is supposed to happen when God comes into your heart and becomes Lord over your life. The thing is, is yeah, does it cost a lot? Yes. Does, is there a great cost to following Jesus? Yeah. Is there a great cost to being his disciple? Yeah. But there's a great cost to not being his disciple. There's a cost to discipleship. What's the cost of non-discipleship? Being enslaved to greed? Being enslaved to lust? Being enslaved to to your whims and your urges and your desires and your feelings? Always having to have a boyfriend? Always having to have a girlfriend? Needing to have a gigantic bank account so you can feel safe and secure? Always needing to gossip? Needing to be that person that can kind of have little tidbits so that people will like you? People will laugh at your jokes, the things that you say about people behind their back? You begin to be enslaved to all those things, to pride, to greed, to whatever it is. When you don't allow Jesus into your life to come in and be Lord of your life and set you free. You know, there's this video that I want to show you. Um, Because, and I said this before, but one time when we were going to plant this campus, we consulted a lot of experts. And every single one of the experts said, don't plant a campus at, at Disney. Uh, because uh, the, the population is very transient, uh, so you're not going to get a great consistent base, um, and they don't make a lot of money, so you're not going to be able to have a sustainable uh, church here. Uh, it's not going to be able to sustain itself. 
So don't, don't plan a campus there. That's, it's a bad idea. And you know what? When, when, when I look at our campus, it, it seems like, man, there are a lot of reasons not to do this. But I want to show you a video that I think is going to change some things in the way that you think. There's a, a church in India of, of, extreme, uh, of people in, in extreme poverty. And what they do is unbelievable. Will you, will you show that video for us, Keith? Lal Rua lives in a tiny remote village in Mizoram. Her family sustains on a meager income of less than one dollar a day. Despite abject poverty, simple women like Lal Rua are spearheading a revolution that is sweeping the world of missions. Their movement, Bufai Thang, or a handful of rice. Bufai Tham is a practice where each Mizo family puts aside a handful of rice every time they cook a meal and later gather it and offer to the church. The church in turn sells the rice and generates income to support its work. Rice has been the staple food of the people of Mizoram. You are giving what is basic, essential, fundamental to your life. You are sharing that with God. With the passage of time, people have given more than rice, vegetables, firewood, cereals, and their regular tithes, empowering the church to be self-sufficient. Mizoram state is the most backward state in India and we are the poorest of the, of the poor but still we can raise funds for the ministry of the Lord. At the close of this last physical year we received altogether around 13 million US dollars. Out of that 12% of our total income is from the handful of rice collection. With 1,800 missionaries in India and many overseas, the Mizoram Church is known as a missionary church world over. This success is attributed to their selfless and creative giving. It is not our richness or our poverty that make us serve the Lord, but our willingness. So we Mizoram people say as long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give to God every day. This is not a church 2,000 years ago that has apostles that are doing these crazy miracles. This is a church today. A church today that lives in one of the poorest parts of India where people are making about a dollar a day and they all together last year raised $13 million. 
almost two million of it was just from handfuls of rice. A handful of rice at every meal. He said, if you have something to eat, you have something to give. He said, it's not about our richness or our poverty, but our willingness to give. When I look at the story that we just read, when I look at Lydia, and she said, God, what do I have to give? Whatever it is, whatever gift, whatever talent, hospitality. Sometimes people think hospitality, that's not a great talent. I want to be a a teacher. I want to be a prophet. I want to be a, a worship leader. Man, her hospitality did so much for the kingdom. There are people in, in, in our community that have the gift of hospitality, and it has changed the way that we do church. I don't know what your gift is, what your talent is, but you have something. You do have a spiritual gift that you can use to bless the body. I don't know what your financial situation is, but I bet it's not great. I bet it's not extreme wealth, but I bet it's more than a dollar a day. And I know you can twist the statistics however you want. It costs more to live here than it costs there. But the point is, is they were willing, saying, God, not, not, not what am I obligated to give? What do I have to give in order to do enough? What is my 10%? But God, what do I have that I can use for your glory, for your kingdom, to spread out your name? This church in India, in one of the poorest parts of India, has sent out 1,800 missionaries to do the work of God, to spread the love of Jesus, to tell people that God doesn't hate them, God isn't mad at them, but God loves them so much that he has sent his son to die for them. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus died for you and is inviting you into his kingdom. He's inviting you into his family. He wants to adopt you as his son. He wants to adopt you as his daughter. And he wants you to share in the inheritance along with the rest of us in the body of Christ. The inheritance that is due Jesus for what Jesus did. If you watch that video, you might feel guilty and you might feel ashamed. But I feel something completely different. I feel challenged. I feel a little convicted by the Spirit, which is good. Conviction is good. But I feel challenged. I feel opportunity Because you know what? If we were in an extremely wealthy part of America, if we were uh, living in Winter Park, or we were living in uh, the Woodlands, or Highland Park, or Uptown New York, or wherever it is that you know of that is a wealthy uh, part of town, and we all made a ton of money, and we were gathered together making a ton of money, and we gave some money away, we could probably do some big things, and no one would think anything of it. But when I look at our situation, I think what an amazing opportunity to demonstrate that it's not by human power, it's not by human knowledge, it's not by human might, it's not by human gifting, it's by the power of the spirit of the God of the universe that is mightily in our midst, that we are able to go above and beyond what anyone could do. I want to do things at this campus that people are shocked at and say, it can't happen. There's no way these people could do this. This church cannot be sustained because you're too poor. This church can't be sustained because too many times people come and then they go. It will not work. I want to have a story that demonstrates the might and the power of God that we can tell people about and encourage wealthier churches, encourage bigger churches, and say, if we can do it, then you can do it. Because it's not us. It's not about our checkbook. 
It's not about the size of our house. It's not about the size of our bank account. It's not about how good looking we are, how talented we are. It's about the spirit of the God of the universe empowering us to do God-sized things for his glory, to spread his love so that people in all the farthest reaches of the earth can hear that God loves them. What an amazing opportunity that we have I can't imagine what would happen if each and every one of us had the mindset of Lydia that says, God, whatever you want, whatever you have, what what do I have that I can give to you? How can I bless the body? How can I serve the body? There are so many needs that we have here. It's crazy. Just on Sunday nights alone, we need people uh, that are talented musicians. We need people that are gifted at leading worship. We need people uh, that can carry stuff and set stuff up. We need people that can do lighting and sound. We need people who, who have hearts for people that love people, that want to encourage people and greet people and welcome people uh, and get people connected to the church. We need people that have a heart to disciple other people to Jesus. We need people in every area of the body. So if you're here, you love Jesus and you have a pulse, we need you. It's true, we do. We absolutely need you. It's like this this beautiful puzzle. There's all these holes in the puzzle and, and they're shaped just like you in the way that you're gifted, the resources that you have. And, and as we begin to complete the puzzle, we will be able to do such mighty things for the glory of God, for the spreading of his kingdom. And we'll be able to, to teach bigger churches, wealthier churches, more talented churches, and say, here's what you can do if you let go of your, your, your grip on you, grip on your reputation, grip on your stuff, and say, Holy Spirit, use my handful of rice for your glory. That excites me. What a great opportunity that we have. I'm so excited to see what God will do through us in the coming weeks, months, and years at the Disney campus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wow, what an amazing God that you are, that you can take a handful of rice and produce $2 million. And God, we know it's not about the money but even more that it's about our hearts and the opportunity that we have to allow you to say, God, come and be Lord of my life. Not just Savior, but Lord. God, show me what I have to give. God, show us what we have to give. Let us know where our gifts are, where our talents are, where our resources are. Let us know where the needs are in the body and allow us to begin giving of all we have for you. Lord, I pray that we'd begin to see great and amazing God-sized things happen at this campus. God, as we have already seen some, I pray that we would see more and that you would use us as an example for people to follow, that the world would look in on our body and say, there is no explanation for what goes on here except that it must be something different, something unique, something supernatural, the way that they love one another, the way that they love me, the way that they give, the way that they serve. There must be something greater out there. There must be something greater going on because it's beyond what I can comprehend. And I pray that you would use us to invite so many people into your kingdom, to disciple so many people into maturity in Jesus that we would be a part of your great epic work of inviting people into your family, God. We need you.
free us from our stuff. Free us from our, our reputation. Free us from our rights. Free us from, from ownership over our lives. So that we give all that we have and see great expansion of your kingdom. And so we cry out in the powerful name of your son, Jesus, make this true in our lives.